Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. One of the most popular film quotes of all time is, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. In his book, Mad as Hell, The Making of Network, and the Fateful Vision of the Angriest Man in Movies, New York Times cultural reporter Dave Itzkoff examines the film and the career of writer Patty Chayefsky. The book was published in 2014 by Times Books and reprinted in trade paperback in 2015 by Picador. In my interview with him, Dave discusses his interest in Chayefsky and the brutal history of the making of this prophetic film. Welcome to Dave Itzkoff. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is your first film-related book, but you've obviously written extensively about popular culture. But let's get some background in. Obviously, you have a busy day job working for the New York Times, writing for the New York Times. But when did you decide that writing was something you wanted to do as a profession? It's it's something that's always been part of my life, uh, even as a, a child. I mean, my parents will tell you stories of how when I was in nursery school and we had a typewriter in the classroom and I got in trouble because... I was the first kid who knew how to type all the naughty words, and I was showing my other friends how to do it, and then we accidentally left the piece of paper behind in the typewriter and uh, got in trouble for that. But I would say it's something that uh, you know really happened uh, much later in life, probably in, in high school or in college. I, I mean, I had a few professors who were already in media in different ways, including John McPhee and, uh, at the time, Terrence Raff, who was the uh, one of the film critics for The New Yorker, uh, and they they actively encouraged me, and and that I think probably made all the difference. Well, obviously, and the the one thing these days with social with media, digital media, and social media, you probably have the opportunity to do more writing than you ever thought you'd be able to, given how some people literally are are at it twenty four hours, seemingly at it twenty four hours a day. It is interesting, certainly, how – I mean, I remember, you know, this will date me quite a bit, but getting to college and discovering email and uh, all these kinds of innovations actually sort of bringing back, uh, you know, some some degree of engagement with uh, – I don't know if you'd call it a literary culture, but certainly with uh, that with written communication and that becoming a valuable uh, skill again. Uh, your first two books are – autobiographical in nature. But why did you decide in this case to write a film-related book? Well, for for any number of reasons, I think you can only write so many uh, memoirs. Uh, certainly, by uh, you know, by the time you're, uh, I mean, I'm 39 now. I don't, I don't think I have another personal story in me at the moment. But also, um, most of the kinds of writing that I've done professionally has been, uh, as you mentioned, about popular culture, and, and certainly with a focus, quite a bit of focus on on film and television. And uh, this was the the not only was this a movie that uh, you know had immense 
personal value to me, but it was a way to tie in a lot of the history of of film and of television uh, in a way that I, I hadn't seen written before. It's certainly eras, not just one era, but multiple eras uh, in both media uh, that I think we certainly now think of as, as kind of golden ages, both the 50, 1950s and the 1970s. Uh, you know, we, to a certain degree, romanticize them as, you know, eras when seemingly much better work was being done, when artists, I think, had more control over what they were doing uh, in these works. And so, I mean, all, all those things just kind of made it irresistible. And actually, that is part of what you have to say early on in the book of Chayefsky's opinions of what was going on in the 50s, where everybody talked about it being a golden age, and he made some interesting comments about that and whether how true or not true that particular concept was. Certainly, if you, if you look at his work and, and, and frankly, a lot of the work that was being done, as I said earlier, I mean, we certainly romanticized the period, but the kinds of struggles that the creators were going through then, even when the, the medium of television was brand new, it's really not all that different from what you know contemporary writers and producers go up against now, that uh, it's very, very hard to sort of maintain your autonomy and to, to have control uh, over over work and certainly just the the influence of everyone from uh, the television networks to your fellow producers to uh, advertisers and sponsors to just so many it's a, it's such a collaborative uh, environment if you want to if you want to use that euphemism uh, that uh, you know there, there's there's just so many different ways that uh, a vision kind of gets chipped away at and often you know what what makes it to the screen is is rarely uh, you know the 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 work of any one person or or this or the embodiment of what that person uh, imagined when they when they first got uh, into the endeavor and so that was that was something that uh, someone like Chayefsky for it was was battling for uh, you know going back to 1953 1954 and this this whole and, and nobody even really knows what TV is yet and it you know it had so few sort of established uh, rules and standards and traditions and, and certainly very few genres. And yet, you know, he's already very attuned to this idea of, uh, you, you know, just uh, maintaining his personal voice and already feeling frustrated that he can't uh, get that across. And, and uh, you know, ask any, uh, ask any showrunner today if he or she feels uh, any differently. Of course, I think you're right. You've just pretty much hit the reason why there is some different types of material back in that period is is because it's new media. And every time there's a new method of of, of distribution or of showing something or, or presenting something, there's that period of time. I mean, early Internet, uh, early television, sometimes in the movies, early time where people were doing somewhat more unusual things because – for number one, television had all this time that they had to fill, and there wasn't a lot there, so they were starting from scratch, so to speak. Right, right. And in television, I think maybe more than, than any other, when I mean, we think of that as being so 
regimented in terms of what what tele you know what television can do, what shows look like. Everything has to have a kind of a genre or a format that it has to fit into, and it's so even now populated by you know police procedurals and uh, hospital dramas and uh, sort you know reality shows, and everything has to kind of fit into a certain niche. And you, you know you have to remember that there was ever so briefly uh, a time when it was just this wide open landscape and you just had you had a few networks that just knew well we've got to we've got to put up something and we've got to sell ads against it and that was that was really all that uh, uh, you know they they were concerned with at the time and so it, at least for a few years you just had uh i mean this incredibly kind of fertile period not only for uh writers and producers but also for actors and so many uh, you know, new voices and faces that emerged at that time, just because it was it's kind of a this gold rush era. If you had an idea or you had even a you know a smidgen of talent, uh, they were they were interested in you. So let's talk a little bit more about Chayefsky, though, before we get to the movie in more detail. Um, most people that know the film would probably know something about him, but I think to an extent he sort of disappeared a little as far as you know general knowledge of him, even though I think frankly um, he doesn't deserve that. I mean, the material he did, even the small amount, I would say. is So what was his background and how did he affect his film writing? Sure. Well, I, I mean, he grew up in the in the Bronx, and uh, you know, was not not uh, uh, first generation, but you know, the son uh, of of you know first generation uh, Americans, and uh, you know, came from a, a Jewish uh, household, and they were you know middle class. They did you know the father did uh, reasonably well, uh, and you know he he grows up in the nineteen. Uh, 30s and 40s, and then is uh, you know then then uh, you know it, it participates as a you know he's a member of the military in in, in World War II, and uh, you know he's he's injured in uh, in combat. They're not not uh, you know mortally, but in, enough that you know he can't continue to fight. And then uh, we, while continuing, uh, you know, as a, a member of the military, works on. Uh, you know some some documentaries uh you know for for the u s and then when the the war is over uh you, you know through some of the uh, the contacts that he made and you know meeting other other people who would go on to be or already were uh, established screenwriters and and playwrights when he comes back uh you know to the u s after the war he basically try, you know tries to find his way as uh, as a writer i mean he works briefly in his his uncle's uh print shop but mostly is is trying to hack it uh you know really as a I, I mean i think in his mind he wanted to be a stage dramatist and you know write works for uh, for broadway uh but then you have certainly uh, by the uh, the early 1950s just the explosion of uh, of television and uh so he spends a little bit of time uh adapting other people's uh works either for radio or for tv but then pretty quickly becomes uh a writer of his own material the title of the book refers to him as the angriest man in movies or the the subtitle of the book <laughs> right, uh, right and you, it's a little a little play uh, i mean a little i mean it's sort of a I guess a, a pun or a, you know a little inside joke for any reader who comes to the uh, the book with any inside knowledge, only because uh, I think most people, if if you know Network at all, you certainly know about the anger of Howard Beale, the the principal character of the film. But uh, oh, I think that's a it's a it's a, an anger and a frustration that was certainly uh, you know shared by Chayefsky 
for, for much of his life and career, too. And that was what my second part of the question was going to be. What yeah. were the sources of some – why was he – why was he so angry in general yeah. as far as his career and his probable belief that he wasn't as successful with what he wanted to do as he probably should be? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of no, there's no one incident that you can hang it on. And, and as, as we, you know, as far as I'm aware, no sort of great trauma that occurred to him that made him feel this way. But I think he represents a kind of personality that I think, uh, you know, you see not, is they're not uncommon, certainly in uh, the mass media and certainly in any kind of, uh, you know, art or entertainment form and people who just feel things, uh, you know, very deeply. I mean, he was somebody who was very attuned. Certainly the more his career went on, was very attuned to, you know, what he felt were uh, problems in the country and just the ways in which the fabric of the nation seemed to be unraveling. And he just felt that there were just more increasingly insurmountable problems uh, you know, facing the country, facing the world, and that on the one hand he had this uh, really remarkable platform on just it, to to reach people uh, on a mass scale, and yet that uh, fewer people were actually listening to what he had to say or following the uh, the directives that he was trying to uh, to give him. I think he had he had very high standards, and he also uh, just was a very sensitive person and had a real personal sense of of dignity and felt a kind of wound or affront any time, uh, you know, anytime he saw anything that he felt went against his sense of personal justice. And there were just so many, certainly by the 1970s, there were so many things going on in the world that, uh, that, that, that set him off in that way. Of course, that anger tends to come through in his, in his works pretty obviously. I mean, usually the main characters are not, are very quick to show their anger or you can see it. For example, George C. Scott in the hospital is probably, you know, clearly a good character to show, to have or a good actor to have if you want to show anger. And of course yes. we see it in hospital or excuse me, also in network. Right, right, and you know, I mean, you can you can trace it almost all the way back to really the, the beginning of his of his professional career. Even in, in uh, you know, Marty was the work that really was his big uh, breakthrough, both as uh, you know, originally as a uh, a television drama, and then later as uh, as a film. And that's a kind of you know a classic Chayefsky character of somebody who is you know very tightly wound, and at least at first doesn't necessarily show. Uh, you know their anger or their you know their frustration, but they these characters typically get some big moment, usually in you know the the climax of of the piece, you know somewhere in Act Four, uh, where they will just you know they'll blow up at somebody or something will finally uh, trigger them to you know unleash whatever it is that they've got inside them, and then it all comes out in uh, you know one big monologue or uh, you know some kind of tirade usually. And those are, you know, moments like that are very often the turning points, uh, you know, in, in his screenplays, not usually an act of, you know, a, a violence or a physical confrontation, but usually, you know, so, something verbal and a big, a big speech that somehow, you know, either turns the tide or it, late, it lets you know exactly what the stakes are for this character. Of course, in Network, we didn't wait till Act 4. We got it, you know. Right about in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. If you look at the sort of the running time, you get you get the big uh, the Howard Beale speech. I think somewhere in the in the middle of the film. 
So let's talk more about Network itself. When did you first see it, and what led you to decide that it needed a book? <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm, I've I've had trouble kind of placing in my mind when I was first turned on to the the movie. I mean, the thing that I remember most vividly is the parody of it that Mad Magazine ran, uh, and I, I didn't, I wouldn't have even seen it when it was first published. That would have been obviously in 1976 or 77 when the movie came out, and when I was, you know, about one <laughs> one year old. I must have seen it in some, you know, kind of reprint collection in the 1980s, and and the running the running joke in in that parody is that the language of the movie was so foul that even in Mad Magazine they can't really represent it. They can't print all those curse words. They have to use all these kind of funny, uh, you know, little comic book uh, symbols and characters to represent it. So of course, as a you know, a seven-year-old child or whatever, I was tremendously fascinated to know what were the real words that even Mad Magazine had to sort of bleep out. So. I must have, I I, I mean, I'm sure I rediscovered it in high school and college and, you know, then really understood, uh, you know, what the messages and the the themes and ideas of the movie were that I I certainly did not grasp, uh, you know, at at age seven, that's for sure. Uh, But, but I mean, the decision to write about it, I mean, that was, I just really had a wonderful opportunity uh, now almost uh, four years ago that the, uh, you, you know, the, 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 papers of Patty Trayeski, the, the mass of them, uh, are now owned by the New York Public Library, and anyone is, uh, you know, you can you can go there and request them, and you can see really just about everything, almost everything that he ever wrote down in his life. If you want to see, you know, uh, crossword puzzles that he worked on when he was just killing time or on an airplane, you can you can look those up, or you can see, you know, all the drafts of uh, his screenplays for all the various uh, motion pictures and, and television episodes that he wrote. And, uh, you know, as, as I was saying about four years ago, the library had just approached me as, uh, you know, just in my capacity as a reporter at the Times, if I wanted to take a look, uh, you know, specifically at the papers, uh, you know, relating to network. And they were just so, uh, you know, just fascinating and evocative. And his, certainly his voice and his spirit, and his attitude were, you know, so uh alive still on those pages and i mean i wrote at the time i think about a two thousand word feature just on the papers and the the sort of you know the evolution of network that they suggested and and even in that amount of space you you can imagine you can only really kind of you know scratch the surface of what what's there and the story that could still be told and and so i mean it just seemed like a very natural thing to want to you know follow that further in a book that would let me, on the one hand, tell Trayevsky's story and and you know the arc of his career and network is the certainly the seminal work in it, but also to tie in these other storylines about how television evolved, uh, you know, from the start of his career to the point at which he writes network and how uh, TV news changed so much and how just the 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 business of it and and the uh, you know just how audiences related to it, how much that had changed in, again, that same sort of 20-year span. Of course, you're, like we've already said, your first two books are autobiographical, and a lot of the other material you've written have been popular culture and probably more current-type material. So how did it feel to actually 
I mean, how much, what was your experience in doing research in the past, having to actually sit down and just comb through this material? As a historian, I'm used to having to do research, and <laughs> sometimes other people aren't as much. So I'm wondering whether what you felt and how how did did you find it interesting, enjoyable, oh, or sure? I mean, it, it's it's in, in so, I mean, I was fortunate in a way that my you know at the time I undertook the sort of you know the real heavy duty library research that my my wife at the time happened to be on a she happened to be on a trip to uh to japan she was working there for about three or four months and i just had a lot of uh, a lot of solo time on my hands so i I certainly didn't feel guilty about you know going to the library for you know six or eight hours at a time and just you know calling in a couple of boxes and just working straight through them i mean it's it's it, it no question it's it's very solitary, but it, it can also be very, uh, you know, very pleasurable. And certainly to look at, you know, Chayefsky's papers in, in particular, uh, I mean, you, you, it, it seems sort of obvious to say, but that, you know, this was an era when there were, you know, no personal computers, no digital devices of any kind. So any, any, you know, any, any work that you did, I mean, it had to be committed to paper in, in some form. And so, that, I mean, that resulted in him leaving behind a very thorough archive, but he was also such a meticulous guy, I think partly out of habit and partly out of fear, fears that later came true, fears that he was going to be sued or subpoenaed in some way. And so he just held on to everything. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you, you have to do a little bit of, uh, you know, putting together the jigsaw puzzle yourself, but you can really see the evolution of the movie you know, come together right before your eyes. And it was a movie that went through, uh, you know, many different iterations. He really was not the kind of guy who just, you know, came up with an idea and wrote the script and he was done. I mean, he really revised and, and rewrote and really without a lot of external input. It wasn't as if he went to even his producing partner or whichever studios he happened to be writing for and said, you know, what do you think of this and what what notes do you have for me? And, you know, what what suggestions could you make? He when when he when he felt that a script was done, it was done. But he you could be you could you could be fairly assured that by the time it got to you, it had gone through a lot of revision and, and rethinking and was in a pretty refined form at that point. You hear stories of which screenwriters are even playwrights who are of the opinion that who, who who have the belief that I wrote the words you say them exactly as I wrote them and we know that he definitely was one of those in that school. Oh no, he I mean he's somebody who it, it, quite frankly you know demanded it, insisted upon it, uh, even to the point I mean on network uh, you know he was the rare screenwriter. I mean it was it was part of his production deal. He was on set every single day and not just watching from the wings or from behind the scenes, but he physically had himself positioned on set, you know, basically as close as close to the shooting as he could, as close to the action as he could be, uh, so that he could watch the actors and make sure that they performed the, the dialogue exactly as he wrote it. And if you flubbed a line or a word, he would talk to the script supervisor and send the script supervisor over to you, and she would say, well, actually, you know, the line is this, or actually the word is this, and he would make sure that uh, you said it as he wrote it. 
Yeah, because you talk a lot about the film, the actual process, and the good thing is that not only did you have access to his materials, but you also were still able to talk to some of the people who were involved in the actual filming. So that probably helped to give a better, a, a, an even more well-rounded uh, description of what the process must have been like. Certainly, I mean, you know, one it's unfortunate that I mean, again, as as, as thorough as as Trayevsky was, he didn't he himself did not keep a lot of. Uh, you know, notes or archival material on so much on the shooting of of the movie, or you know, I mean, he, you know, you see, you know, some memos that that he was uh, looped in on, but uh, you know, fortunately, a lot of the, you know, not not so many of the the cast members are still alive, although you know, many of the supporting players still were, but also a lot of just the uh, the hands-on production people, uh, and even you know, Trayevsky's producing partner Howard Gottfried, who worked with him. Uh, you know, on network and on the hospital, he's still alive, and so you know, just having having access to many of those people, uh, you know, they certainly helped uh, you know fill in a lot of the blanks and really tell you you know day by day what occurred. Even uh, you know the, the the woman who I mentioned, who was the uh, the script supervisor, it was one of the very first uh, you know Hollywood motion pictures that she worked on, and she was really kind of awestruck just by you know the names of some of the uh, the cast members and, and sort of uh you know a little a little dazzled by their celebrity so she she decided to keep a diary of every day on the film and then in 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 tracking her down she said you know if you'd like to uh you know read my diaries or draw from them in any way you're welcome to and that was certainly uh, a very helpful uh find um of course what sort of to fill in the rest of the story related to the writing is that he received very high billing for a writer. It, if if my memory exactly correct, during the main titles, it's network, and the next the next title is by Ch- Patty Chayefsky. Yes, I mean that's that's about as high. Uh, you, you know, I mean, basically, in 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 terms of credit that you could receive. I mean, my, nowadays you you what you usually see is, uh, you know, the, it, it will say a film by, and then the name of the director that the director is perceived as. Is sort of the the auteur of the project, and he was maybe one of the last uh, screenwriters where it really was understood that this was his movie. And even though this is a film directed by Sidney Lumet, you know, one of the all-time great filmmakers, and a person who put certainly put his personal stamp on every film he made, and his movies were very much his movies. He understood going into this that to some extent he was going to be playing second fiddle to Chayefsky, and his job was to help Chayefsky realize whatever vision he had. Yeah, there there was a period of time, and going, this goes even back into the 30s, 40s, and 50s, where the ultimate was getting your name above the title as far as the director. <laughs> so, for example, Frank Capra was probably known as one of the first directors who regularly had his name a film by or Frank Capra's If It's a Wonderful yes. Life or whatever. And right. so you're right. In this particular case, um, he pretty much is the highest billed person. I yeah, don't I remember mean, if there's be- any cast before him or not. It depends. I mean, if you're looking, for example, at the opening credits, you'll still see, I'm pretty certain, you know, William Holden and Faye Dunaway and Peter Finch's name uh, ahead of his. But, <coughs> excuse me, see, if you look at certainly the way the film got written about, the way it was reviewed and, and covered in the press uh, after it was released and became 
uh, you know, kind of a sensation and kind of notorious that everyone treated it as Trayevsky's film. And, and he also sort of had to bear the brunt of most of the criticism that was directed at him, the people's perception, uh, not inaccurately, that you know, it, was a, it was very negatively disposed towards television, very negatively you know, disposed towards TV news, that these were all, you know, his ideas, not, you know, Faye Dunaway or Holden, and then they did not necessarily have to, uh, you, you know, withstand the criticism that those ideas took in the way that Chayefsky did. Obviously, he had large amounts of television experience, and um, did he feel that he was being realistic with some of the things he was trying to say, or did he mean it to be a satire, or did he really, is he, was he, what kind of a point was he trying to make? Yeah, well, I think that he, you know his his position on the film could certainly vacillate from day to day, and some days he would talk about it as a kind of way out satire, and on some days he would say, "Oh no, this is you know this this is my prediction of exactly what's going to happen," as, as crazy as as it seems. But I think I think the the part that he was usually consistent on, the part that I think he did genuinely believe, is that you know the move to, to his mind, the movie was not solely about television. It was about uh, what's happening to American society and people feeling disconnected from each other and feeling, you know, feeling alienated, feeling like things are getting out of control and getting away from their ability to comprehend it or to have uh, control over their own destinies. And for him, TV was just sort of the vehicle in which to tell that story. It was a world that he certainly had a lot of experience in, although he had to kind of relearn it to see how TV operated differently in the 70s than it did when he first broke through. But again, to his, to his mind, he didn't he didn't feel that he was telling a story that was solely or specifically about TV. And, and I think he was really quite struck by how negatively, you know, f- figures in TV industry responded to the movie, how much they really kind of detested it. And that, that, that genuinely took him all uh, by surprise. And it seems, it seems almost strange if you, if you watch the movie, if you've ever watched the movie to think, well, how, how could you be surprised that people like, uh, you know, Walter Cronkite and John Chancellor would be upset by this movie. But the fact that Chayefsky really didn't see that reaction coming, it just shows you, I think, to the, the extent to which, you know, he really didn't see it being about television specifically. He seemed to think that people who worked in the industry would just kind of laugh it off or they would think that they were somehow in on whatever kind of joke he was telling. Well, that may be... I mean, don't hate to use the word, but he was probably being a little naive about that because yeah, name yeah. me a, a, name me an interesting movie about the film industry. It's hard to find them because it's, <laughs> I think in the same concept, there there people get a little bit uh, they, they 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 get possessive about their industries, and doesn't matter what the movie is if it if it seems to be sort of aimed at an in, a particular industry, and you know you often see complaining that uh, maybe some people might say is a little out of unnecessary but it's not a big surprise that people would have been upset about it especially since the various uh at least which of the networks gave him some space or allowed him to do some filming yeah well they they didn't they weren't able to do any filming at the american networks because by that point uh you know the, everyone had seen the script and they they already were kind of uh, wary of it but 
when he was still in the research stages, he, he certainly spent extensive time both at uh, NBC and at CBS and, and, and also visited ABC as well. I mean, he certainly got to see the uh, the inner workings of, of all three networks. And even, you know, he, he spent time, I mean, both with uh, Walter Cronkite, the CBS anchor, with John Chancellor, the NBC anchor. Uh, so they were both, uh, they, and neither of them really had a sense at the time of what he was writing, in part because uh, Chayefsky didn't know for sure what he was writing. So they they had they had some good reason to be to be taken aback when the movie came out and to to realize, oh, I in in a way I was sort of complicit in this. I I helped this guy to uh, basically stab me in the back, as, at least as far as as far as they felt about it. Of course, like you say, the, it, it is a perception issue. There's a lot of movies that have gotten probably unfair criticism because people think of, look at the movie only from its most obvious without looking at the underlying themes. And in this case, you're absolutely right. The themes of alienation are, are, are come through quite clearly. We've got Howard Beale, who's alienated from the world and right. from sanity. And then you've got William Holden, <laughs> who's alienated from from his life because he lost everything he had because work and he lived so much for work and then Faye Dunaway who's alienated from emotion to an extent right so those are very yeah I think that's an excellent uh, analysis of, of those principal characters and what's uh, you know what's what's uh, what's motivating them and and just to, to add to what you were saying I mean part of what was fascinating about working on this book was just to go back and see the reaction that greeted the movie at the time that it was released, because it, we certainly think of it as a, a, a classic now and an inarguably so. Uh, but you know, to look at the you know the reviews that it that it got at the time, it was it was highly polarizing. I mean, it was there were you know quite a few reviews, including I'm happy to say in the New York Times that were just you know raves, and then there were there were many others that were highly negative and and there were you know many many uh, opportunities in both in print and in television coverage for the news industry itself uh, to criticize it and they certainly made their feelings known and then it it went on to become a great uh, commercial hit I mean at least at the scale uh, at which it was made and then you know it was also uh, you know something of a, of a sensation at at the Academy Awards that year so that gave it a little bit more uh, legitimacy, but uh, that was it was not a given at at the time. There were a lot of different ways it, it potentially uh, could have gone, and so you sort of you sort of see how. Uh, as, I think with, with, as with many other movies, I mean their 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 status isn't really established until you know many years after their release, and that's when we can really sort of understand uh, you know the the where where they kind of fit into the larger. Uh, pantheon, but uh, you know the, the immediate reaction that they receive is not always telling of you know where they're going to you know what what their standing is going to be later on. Of course, you mentioned your age. I'm 20 years older than you, so I did see Network when it first opened uh-huh. in the theaters. And one of the things you you know there may have it may have received a lot of criticism, but what's interesting is back in the pre-internet days, you didn't always know the other criticism was going on because depending on where you lived. You're only seeing local coverage, and if they didn't talk about it, you didn't really know it was 
always being criticized the same way. I remember going to see the movie and walking out saying it was in many ways like nothing I'd ever seen before because of just yeah. the audaciousness, and I guess that's the best word I can use, yeah. of what he, of what was put up on the screen and what came out of his head. Right. And well, one person I can tell you that was probably paying attention to all this coverage was Chayefsky himself, and I think it really – uh, he he really took it to to heart uh, that that you know he really I mean he believed so strongly in the ideas that he felt it embodied and and also I think seemed to think that everybody would understand exactly what he was trying to say with the movie so to whatever extent either he felt that people weren't embracing its messages or w- weren't fully understanding them, uh, that really wounded him. And it's, it's, a, it's a really tough thing. I mean, on the one hand, to have the kind of platform that he had to, you know, to get his ideas out to as many people as he did, I mean, by the millions, and then really to 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 think that every single one of those millions is going to grasp it in the way that you intended it and to be so, uh, you know, I think I just... Uh, uh, you, you know, to be that sensitive to that, that even, uh, you know, a handful of, of rejections or even a small percentage of negative feeling or misunderstanding or however you want to characterize it to, to be so hurt by that. I mean, that's a, it's a very tough thing to experience on the scale that he did. The other thing I'm thinking about one maybe led, helped its um, popularity or, or the, the view of it is that it came out just before the beginning of the home video revolution. Home video started to come in in the early 80s, and I'm going to guess that it was probably, and I have no way of knowing this, I'd have to check, it was probably released on video pretty early on. And so I'm going to guess that it found, nowadays it's not unusual for movies for theater, you know, studios and producers care more about the aftermarket than they do about the the main market. And yeah, well, certainly one thing that they were very concerned about with this is that you know a big part of you know before they were you know before they learned that or they before it came to pass that it was uh, you know a commercial success in and of itself in its theatrical release uh you know they were concerned about being able to later show it on television and you know that part of the way that they could make some of their money back is by licensing it i mean there were there were no uh, there weren't really cable channels to show it on at that point. They couldn't necessarily think about, well, HBO or you know, pay-per-view, things like that. But to show it on one of the major networks, that was a way to, you know, make a, you know, you can make a couple of million dollars right there. And this was a movie they were very fearful. I mean, within the studios themselves at MGM and United Artists, they were looking at this movie, which is so critical of television and has you know, so many four-letter words in it and thinking, how are we ever going to get this shown on television? Well, you, you can, certain films, you, it got to a point, and I'm not sure if, if you mentioned this at all on network or whether it was done in any way, shape, or form, but I know there was, a after a while, certain uh, a producer might consider, okay, we're going to, re, you know, they would refilm scenes knowing full well that that's for television and and or they would make sure that certain scenes where there was a lot of foul language the person swearing's back was to the camera so they could dub it without it being right. obvious <laughs> that was definitely not done 
in this case, and they, I mean, they, they did have to make, uh, you know, certain edits with how it was shown on, on television. Uh, you know, for example, I mean, the very famous uh, love scene between William Holden and Faye Dunaway, that definitely was not shown, uh, you know, in, in, on, on, you know, on the, 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 broad, the CBS broadcast. But one, one thing that's kind of surprising, they did allow a few of the, uh, the obscene words in the, in the film uh, to be broadcast on, on network television when the film was first shown. I, I mean, it was it, sort of a funny thing to think about and probably wouldn't even fly today, certainly not in a kind of post, uh, you know, Janet Jackson, Nipplegate environment, but that they actually made a few, uh, you know, they, 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 they made a few exceptions here because the, they, the feeling was that the obscene language was sort of integral to uh, the story and to the scenes that they applied to. There was just no way uh, around it and would even be sort of insulting to the intelligence of the audience to change those instances. And you would, just, you would never, you could never imagine a, a, a network uh, censor or executive thinking that way today. In fact, I'd say in many ways things have gone reverse when you, oh, think, to, when you think about NYPD Blue and, and what it did for television and, and how nowadays you wouldn't get anything close to that. No, no, not at all. It's certainly not, not again, not on, on, on you know, broadcast, broadcast TV, network. Right, right. right. Cable different, cable. but you're right. Yes, exactly. So let's talk about the casting. Um, obviously, you, you go into a lot of depth about that, which I found fascinating because that's the part where sometimes that I think can when you then watch a movie and you think what 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 was going on in the background so for example the most obvious casting issue in the entire film was Faye Dunaway um obviously well, she was I, she was sort of the easiest one to come by and i think sort of a great stroke of luck i mean she was she was very near the top or if not at the top of their lists for you know for that uh, the Diana Christensen role I and mean, she was on such a huge hot streak at the time. I mean, she'd, she'd had a kind of rise and fall already, you know, if, if you think back to Bonnie and Clyde and then, you know, never really having a great follow-up to that until she made Chinatown, which is many, many years uh, later, but certainly by the mid-70s. I mean, she's, you know, uh, you know as, as hotly in demand as you can imagine. And the fact that she was interested in making the movie, that, on the one, that, that, that gave them a certain amount of, uh, you know, breathing room that they they that gave them one star, gave the the film itself a little bit of uh, of cachet, and and uh, but but the you know certainly not guarantee that every other role would be as easy to fill. Then though, during the filming, she probably there were probably days that some people felt, <laughs> gee, I wish it hadn't been so easy to get Faye Dunaway, and you talk she about that quite a bit. Yeah. Yes, she certainly gave. Uh, I think probably the the hardest time of of all. And but you know she was, she, you know she in in some ways she and Trayevsky were 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 kind of perfectly matched that way. That she also, uh, you know, was as attuned to her own performance in the way that Trayevsky was attuned to his writing. And uh, you know certainly was working in an era as the movie itself is sort of illustrating at a time when. Uh, you know, women were just not not taken uh, as seriously in you know in leadership positions, or you know they were given control uh, you know very warily, if at all. And so the idea that you you know you had 
uh, you know, a leading actress on a, a very, you know, a very male-dominated project in terms of, you know, the other creative positions, uh, you know, and she was somebody who had very strong opinions about any anything that she performed, any any lines of dialogue, had uh, a lot of personal trouble, uh, you know, with the, the nudity that was called for in the love scene with William Holden, uh, and so these all became, uh, you know, points of contention as, uh, you know, as as the shooting went on, and uh, she was not really given a lot of, uh, certainly not a lot of leeway to, uh, you know, to make her opinions known. I wonder, I, just, I don't know, and maybe I don't know that you would know either, but does she have more foul language than anybody else? Or did, did, <laughs> did he purposely give the woman just to, 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 to push the fact that here was a woman trying to be in a man's world, so to speak? And sometimes, I don't know, I, I don't really know the answer to that, but yeah, just something. Yeah, I have to go back and uh, sit, sit and count. I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know. There, there are a few... There, there's a there's a few pretty uh, harsh uh, moments that I can also think of that uh, William Holden has. So he might he might give her a run for her money. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but then, of course, the other person that's probably the person who's probably most well known from Network for a variety of reasons, including sure. the aftermath, is Peter Finch. Absolutely. His career, he didn't have much of a career prior that that the average person wouldn't have known who Peter Finch was very much prior to Network. And he saw Network, or maybe they did, I, I don't, you know, the earlier period. Um, but Network was supposed to be, or what was, was supposed to turn out to be his his way back up. Yeah, it would have been, certainly would have been, uh, you know, his, his comeback uh, vehicle had, you know, had he lived. And, uh, I mean, he was somebody that they came to, uh, you know, certainly, you know, quite reluctantly, I mean, really as a kind of... Uh, a last ditch that, I mean, the, the role of, uh, uh, you know, Howard Beale was, you know, if they could have, they would have liked to cast that first because, they, you know, they understood that that was really the central character or at least so much depended on, you know, who you got to play that that role. And the, all of the people that they thought of as, you know, their sort of top choices, their dark horses, their last resorts, I mean, everybody had, had turned them down. Every Everyone from... Uh, you know, Chavsky made a personal appeal to Paul Newman to see if he'd play the part. They thought of people like, uh, you know, Walter Matthau. I mean, any it just you know, so many different names you could imagine people who were, uh, you know, very popular in that era. All the kind of you know leading men of that time, and it was just such a, uh, you know, the the, the project was in, in that character it was such a sort of, uh, you know, a third rail in a way that that, that I mean that he. He had a lot of really tough monologues. The character said, uh, you know, a lot of really kind of, uh, you know, crazy things or just very pointed things. Uh, also had his share of uh, foul language. And so for all those reasons, as respected as Chayefsky was at the time, a lot of people just didn't want to even touch it. And by the time they get to Peter Finch, I mean, he's living basically in semi-retirement in, in Jamaica after after having had this very long uh, motion picture career uh, in in the United Kingdom, and and you know having done a lot of stage work there, and you know just getting scripts sent to him, you know very occasionally. But this was one that he was willing to uh, you know to to come back uh, to to the U.S. and to New York to make. And the, I think just the fact that a he was open to do it, and b he could do a kind of passable. 
uh, American accent. That was really all that they needed to hear at the time, and they, they really signed him up very quickly uh, because I think they, you know, they were just so close to uh, their shooting schedule at that point. They just needed somebody. Well, of course, it's one of the things that comes out, and that you needed now that the film's been made and obviously is is viewable. You needed somebody who was as strong as the other two characters because it really was a love triangle to an extent. And they, sure. I mean, both William Holden's character and Faye Dunaway's character both loved Howard Beale, but for different reasons. Right, and they, right, they're sort of struggling over him and over, you know, what what kind of a what kind of an anchor and what kind of a newscaster is he going to be? And being, since he's strong, a strong enough actor, he obviously is able to be as important in that sense. And of course. As you've pointed out, it was the aftermath, and I was going to come up to the Academy Awards since they were so controversial for a variety of reasons, and Chayefsky got involved in that too. Sure. Um, it was, and this is one thing I do remember in early 1977 as they were coming up to the Academy Awards after he had passed away, was the big controversy is would the Academy give the award to a posthumous award, which they hadn't done before. Right, certainly not in the in the acting category that had never happened before. And just you know, just to fill in some of the detail that you know, Finch actually, I mean, Finch died in the course of the Academy campaign for the movie, in the course of promoting the the film. There, there, you know, some some time had elapsed, uh, you know, between the making of the movie and its release. That it was shot uh, in the winter of 1976, and by the time. The autumn of '76 is approaching. Uh, you know, it's it's released. You know, basically in in you know November and December of that year, and really starts to uh, you know pick up a lot of of steam at that time in terms of critical reaction uh, and just audience reaction, commercial reaction, and as it emerges as a potential Oscar contender, that just meant uh, at least a need for a lot more promotion, and there were very few people. Uh, you know, who could, you know, who were who were sort of, uh, you know, at, at hand to provide that, that, you know, William Holden was off doing other work and Faye Dunaway didn't really uh, help out too much, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of, you know, she did a couple of magazine features, but, you know, couldn't really do the sort of, uh, you know, the day-to-day stuff that was required even in, in the 70s. And when we think now of Oscar campaigns and how sort of ubiquitous and unending they are now. But in 76, it was not all that different. And so the only people they really had who could put in that level of commitment were Chayefsky himself and uh, Peter Finch. And they, they he was happy to do it because he understood that this was, uh, you know, his opportunity to get back into Hollywood and to work uh, more reliably again. Uh, but, you know, he, he died. He collapsed, you know, in, in, you know, in a hotel in Los Angeles waiting he, you know, he and Sidney Lumet are waiting to be picked up for uh, a TV appearance that morning, and and he, you know, basically dies of uh, of heart failure that that day. Uh, so, it, it, and then he's nominated for uh, best actor a short while later. Right, and of course, like I say, the the run up to the actual Academy Awards was was would the Oscars, you know, would he actually get the award? And then there was a controversy going on as to who was going to accept it if right. uh, he won. You, right. you what, go what into people, a lot of detail about that in the yeah. book. Well, what, what a lot of people probably did not know at the time, but was certainly known 
within the industry is that you know Peter Finch's wife Aletha was black, and so uh, and not American know, either. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, well, she at that. I mean, at that point, you know, she was, you know, I mean, she was from Jamaica and right. living in America. And there were certainly a lot of rumors kicked up about, you know, her immigration status or legal statuses, you know, as far as, you know, was she even allowed to be in the country at the time? And that was, that was sort of part of, I suppose, the, uh, you know, the, the, the smear campaign to not allow her to, uh, you know, to accept uh, the award on, on uh, you know, on, on her, her late husband's behalf. Uh, and you know, it, 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 there's, there's just any, you know, there's any number of sort of explanations as to why they might have been, the Academy might have been, uh, opposed to the idea of her accepting. I mean, there certainly is, you know, the issue of race is, is, is certainly the most, uh, likely, uh, reason. And just in the notion of, you know, having a black woman except for a white man, that was something they still could not countenance. And there had been so few, uh, you know, black recipients of Oscars to that point. Point. It wasn't going to make them look good as a, as an institution, and you know she was she was an outspoken woman and a woman who could kind of shoot from the hip. And there was some fears to what she might actually say if she got up to the podium and 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 did it. And you know, Chayefsky and uh, his producer Howard Godfrey they had to kind of engage in a bit of subterfuge. They had to you know they basically struck this plan. They told the Academy if Finch is named as the winner, then Chayefsky himself will go up and accept the award uh, for him. And that, if you if you go back and you watch the ceremony, that's what starts to happen. That you know Finch is announced as, as the winner, and the audience applauds, and you even hear uh, the you know the voiceover uh, announcer say, you know, accepting the award on behalf of Peter Finch is uh, Patty Chayefsky. And Chayefsky does go up there at first, but as soon as he gets to the podium, he says, you know, I shouldn't even be here, and the, the person who should be accepting this award is Mrs. Peter Finch, and he invites uh, Aletha Finch to come out from the audience and come up to uh, the stage, and then she gives, uh, you know, a very touching and very uh, tearful, short speech, uh, you know, the speech that she thought that her husband would have given had he won. And it's a really uh, beautiful moment. It's hard not to really uh, get broken up <laughs> at even today if you watch it. But to think about, you know, all the, uh, you know, the, the roadblocks that were in trying to get in the way of that moment is also kind of extraordinary to uh, to think about. Of course, Chayefsky's other controversy from that year's Academy Awards was the his response to Vanessa Redgrave's or yeah, well, Vanessa Redgrave's. Yeah. Um, right, that was actually statement. that was actually the following. Oh, year, that's right, although, it was the following. Right. You're right. But most it, it most people do seem to think now. I mean, it, it understandably. I mean, they, these incidents were only a year uh, apart. Uh, you know, and Chayefsky was invited to the back to the ceremony the following year to present an award. This time, because you know, because he had won uh, the previous year. And there was a lot of controversy over Redgrave, who was uh, a nominee for the movie Julia, but who was also uh, a producer of a documentary called The Palestinian, which uh, you know interviewed Arafat, interviewed other uh, Palestinians, which many you know not, you know it, people have their different perspectives on the movie, but the per, the perception of the film was that it was very uh, pro-Palestinian and and sort of uh, you know to almost the exclusion of uh you know Israel's point of view and uh you know th- there was a lot of protesting of the Oscars that year and uh, certainly you know then when you know Redgrave did use 
her acceptance speech early on in the show to talk about you know what uh, you know what she had faced in terms of the protest response, and you know was was critical of the people protesting her very presence. Uh, you know, at the award ceremony, there was no way that Chayefsky felt that he couldn't uh, respond to that in in his own remarks later in the show, uh, and that that just became a kind of defining moment in in his life. If people remember him for anything, if people remember him even for writing Network, they remember him as the guy who gave this kind of pugnacious speech at the Oscars. So, of course, you're a popular culture writer. Um, how prophetic was Network? In your well, I opinion? mean, of course, as, as the author of this book, I certainly feel that it was it was highly prophetic. I, I mean, if you think about, uh, for example, the fact that you know he's writing this in an era when there was there was no such thing as reality television, and he basically predicts this idea that uh, you know notorious public figures in in, in his movie the, the actual. Uh, domestic terrorists uh, are going to be given their own reality show. Uh, I mean, that that did come true to a certain extent. Not that uh, we give terrorists uh, their own television programs, but that there is such a thing now as as reality TV, and uh, you know that that you know sort of the more uh, you know awful or notorious a person, the better a uh, reality star you make. But the the, uh, the certainly the much larger idea. That uh, that he got right is just the, uh, the sort of the, the breakdown of television broadcasting and and TV news as a kind of bellwether of that that the the transition or the uh, the collapse from kind of you know straightforward uh, you know fact based news anchors to a world that's in tom you know dominated not even by uh, just opinion but by you know by spleen and by you know who, whoever can sort of deliver the most uh, impassioned and, and, you know, bilious, uh, you know, commentary on the news, those are the figures that, that prevail. I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, he, he very much uh, anticipated with the movie. And just the larger breakdown of mass media, the, the arrival of the Internet, something that, you know, was, you know, no one knew about in, in 1976, that that was, even though there's there's no presence of, you know, digital or electronic media really in the film, the idea that he is talking about, about how the more sophisticated media becomes and the more it, on the one hand, seems to empower people and allows everyone to have a voice and have a stake and, and you know, have themselves known, uh, you know, in our public discourse, the more it actually sort of uh, drives people apart from one another and the more alienated it makes them feel, the more removed, uh, you know, it kind of makes them in our larger conversation. And that's certainly something that uh, the Internet has, uh, has borne out. Of course, the other part that I see prophetic that he had he hit it right on the button obviously is corporate ownership of of the media companies and Very how true. and how corporate ownership became important to news because suddenly the, the amount of money that was being lost or being spent on news became an important aspect of looking at the bottom line and some of the scenes with Robert Duvall in particular um they seem jarring at the time, but it's it's a given now. And then the amount of money that uh, the networks were spending for you know foreign bureaus and everything else that nowadays just doesn't happen because of the costs involved and the fact that news is supposed to be at least break even, if not make money. Right, and the the idea that you know news itself would basically be you know run by the kind you know I mean the film is sort of 
fearful of the idea that somehow uh, you know an enter- the entertainment division of the network is going to take over a news show, and that certainly happens to varying degrees. But even the fact that you know news has to sort of operate uh, you know by the same standards as entertainment in terms of as you say you know being profitable, delivering ratings, being you know not not merely a public service, but you know entertaining people or, or being widely watched. Uh, you know, I mean, all all of that's occurred. Yeah, I remember, and I have to look up to find out when it was, but Rune Arledge was given, as a sport, he was a sports producer and was given control over the news division at one point at ABC, and I remember that was an incredible, you know, there was incredible anger about the fact that this entertainer was suddenly going to be in charge of the news. Right, right, and, and you know, it, it's it, one of the things that I write about in the book that was sort of happening, uh, you know, contemporaneously with with the movie. I mean, the movie is so much about the idea of you know this this just fear or antipathy of there being you know a, a, a prominent uh, you know female news executive or an, you know a, a, a television executive who happens to be female, and this is all happening at the same time that uh, you know Barbara Walters is being recruited to be you know one of the first uh, you know female television news anchors, and it, just the kind of uh, you know the 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 the, the 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 resistance that that she ran into and just the the bile that was directed at her for you know the it, it, certainly being a woman and and even the perception that she was somebody who had come from the world of entertainment and not you know true journalism that that somehow made her uh, you know less of a uh, you know an appropriate uh, person to to hold the job. I was actually able to quickly check thanks to the internet. Um, he became president in 1977, so it was right after right. Networks came out. And one of the first things he did was uh, was when Barbara Walters was made co-anchor. And so it is interesting that uh, it, we, we got prof- prophecy came down almost right away. So it was yeah. uh, interesting. So anyway, um, so going forward now, obviously you spent a, a good portion of your the last number of years of your life working on a book on film and um we i asked you early on if you didn't mind me asking so uh obviously going forward you have another project going on right now that uh definitely relates to uh entertainment again what is that project Right. So I've been working on a biography of uh, Robin Williams, who, of course, was a tremendous entertainer in a number of different uh, fields. And, and, you know, motion pictures were a big part of uh, his career, as was uh, television, as was uh, stand-up comedy. I mean, those are all worlds that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm you know, endlessly uh, fascinated with. And he was uh, just a particular uh, hero and, and icon of mine and somebody who I, you know, just had a tremendous, tremendous uh privilege of, of getting to write about on a few occasions, uh, you know, when, when he was alive and who really, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend that he would even remember who I was, but that, you know, gave me uh, a lot of uh, access and entree uh, into his life and was, I found just a very warm and, and uh, open person. And, yeah, I think someone that uh, a lot of us just uh, miss tremendously. Well, it's great to know that you can work on a project like that and still write extensively every, for the for the newspaper. So I hope that people. Uh, I hope my editors feel the same way. Well, that's good. Well, 
I, <laughs> but uh, as I say, um, I hope people take the time not only to read this book, but I think follow your writing because uh, you do have a, a good view of culture and you bring across great insight. And I and like I say, I really appreciate that you took the time to talk to me today. And the book is great. The film is too. So definitely deserve to be checked out again. And thanks again, Thank and have a good uh, rest of your day. Oh, thanks. It was my pleasure, and uh, I'm happy to ride uh, Patty Chayefsky's coattails when, <laughs> when I have the opportunity. Great, thanks. All right, thanks again. Thanks to Dave Itzkoff for joining me. I hope you will follow him through his New York Times writing and on Twitter at D. Itzkoff. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.